This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. Welcome to another episode in the 22 Lessons on Ethics and Technology series. In this episode of the series, we take a deep dive into the history of how technology intersects with human rights. My thinking on ethics and technology has human rights at its foundations, so I was particularly excited to sit down with Dr. Jay Aronson, one of the leading thinkers on science, technology, and human rights. We explore how technologies have coincided with the development of human rights in ethical and political terms. And we look at the role that technologies play in our contemporary moment in enforcing human rights and in violating them. Dr. Jay Aronson is the founder and the director of the Center for Human Rights Science at Carnegie Mellon University. He is also a professor of science, technology, and society in the history department. Aronson's research and teaching examines the intersection of science, technology, law, media, and human rights in a variety of contexts. His current project focuses on the documentation and analysis of police-involved fatalities and deaths in custody in the United States. The work is being done through collaborations with the Pennsylvania Prison Society and Dr. Roger A. Mitchell, the Chief Medical Examiner of Washington, D.C. In addition, Dr. Aronson maintains an active interest in the use of digital evidence, especially video, in human rights investigations. In this context, he primarily facilitates partnerships between computer scientists and human rights practitioners to better develop tools and methods for acquiring, authenticating, analyzing, and archiving human rights media. Previously, Dr. Aronson spent nearly a decade examining the ethical, political, and social dimensions of post-conflict and post-disaster identification of the missing and disappeared in collaboration with a team of anthropologists, bioethicists, and forensic scientists he assembled. This work built on his doctoral dissertation, a study of the development of forensic DNA profiling within the American criminal justice system. His recent book, Who Owns the Dead? The Science and Politics of Death at Ground Zero, published by Harvard University Press in 2016, which analyzes recovery, identification, and memorialization of the victims of the 9-11 World Trade Center attacks, is the culmination of this effort. Dr. Aronson has also been involved in a variety of projects with colleagues from statistics, political science, and conflict monitoring to improve the quality of civilian casualty recording and estimation in times of conflict. Dr. Aronson received his PhD in the history of science and technology from the University of Minnesota and was both a pre- and postdoctoral fellow at Harvard University's John F. Kennedy School of Government. His work is funded by generous grants from the MacArthur Foundation, the Oak Foundation, and the Open Society Foundations. Hi, Jay. Hi there. How are you? I'm well. So let's start off with the big question. What does that term that we use so frequently, that you use so frequently in your scholarship when you talk about the central topic, which is human rights, refer to? What does that term human rights mean? What are some of the major ways in which human rights as a legal, political, and philosophical term intersects with technology? So I tend to think of human rights in three related but somewhat different ways. The first one is a set of moral principles or norms that tell us what we are entitled to within a society simply because we're human. If a state fails to 
give us these things or allow us to enjoy these things, it needs to have a good reason and explain why. The second way of thinking about it is that it's a set of normative commitments that we can use to evaluate the policies, practices, and rules within a society. In particular, and traditionally we've looked at this in relation to states, but also increasingly as companies play a more important role in our lives than they ever have before, we can also apply these norms or commitments to the way that companies behave in society. States typically have obligations to respect our rights, to protect us against abuses, and to take positive action to fulfill these rights. One question that we can ask is whether that's enough anymore. So companies that produce technology and that build and run the platforms that we communicate on may begin to have some of these obligations that have traditionally been the state's purview. The third way that I think, and that many of my colleagues think we should think about human rights, is that they serve as a set of norms that can guide us as we move through the world and interact with people as individuals, when we are building or running companies, and when we develop new technologies. So I argue that when we, meaning humans, so when engineers or scientists are developing new technologies, they really need to understand human rights and to take them into account at all stages of the development of a new technology or the modification of an existing technology. So it's not just something that kind of come in at the end of the process, like, oh, now we need to think about human rights or now we need to do ethics. I would argue that a technologist, scientist, researcher, whatever you want to call them, needs to know about human rights before they even start thinking about what kinds of technologies should be built and deployed in the world. What can we know or understand about technology by looking at tech through the lens of human rights? I actually think that's a very complicated question. When we think about human rights law or human rights as a source of norms or practices, there are several principles that really stand out that we can use to evaluate technologies and also build technologies. You know, we think about things like equality and non-discrimination. And when we think about those kinds of things, we're forced to attend to the situations of the most vulnerable people. And to say that all people, regardless of their position in society, to have access to the tools and knowledge needed to make their lives better. There's a principle that is very much a part of human rights practice and human rights law, which is accountability. And that means that we need to ensure that people have access to institutional spaces and mechanisms that actually allow them to make rights claims, to seek redress from accountable parties, whether they're governments or non-state actors like companies, and speak back to the people who develop tools and innovations when they have negative implications on their lives. Taking a step back from that, when we think about participation in the context of human rights, we really should be thinking about how people who will be affected by technologies can play some sort of meaningful role in the development and design of those technologies so that they're really involved and not just kind of consulted at the end saying like, oh, you know, what do you think about this thing? Well, it's actually, I should have been consulted when the thing didn't even exist when it was just an idea. Taking the human rights approach makes it very clear that technology isn't neutral and that power and privilege are embedded within technological systems and that we can't just worry about those things after the systems are built. We need to be intentional about making sure that a technology or a technological system 
is not going to exacerbate existing inequalities before it's designed and implemented. I also think that if you look at the way that human rights and approaches to human rights have developed over the past 20 or 30 years, we've kind of moved beyond just looking at civil and political rights. And we now are also very concerned with economic and social rights to water, family integrity, depending on how you think about things, decent labor conditions, those sorts of things. And if we really take those things seriously, we need to be very attentive to the ways that technology can either make it more possible for people to achieve those rights or can actually prevent them from doing so. And there are examples of both. I think that we can look at the world and see examples where technology is actually allowing people to make rights claims beyond just civil and political rights. And there are lots of other places, and I think there are more places that fit into this category where technology actually makes it harder for people to achieve decent work or clean water or adequate time with their family. Before we get going into some of the ways in which technology or our technologies in the moment may challenge human rights or enhance them, I want to talk about some of the core values for human rights. One of your articles, The Promise and Peril of Human Rights Technology, looks at, and I'll quote you here, while the broad discretion and ambiguity that characterize human rights law allow it to evolve with technology, new interpretations must retain a focus on the core values of international human rights. So what are those core values of human rights and how have they evolved with technology? I think I gave some of those things away in the previous answer. I mean, I think just to kind of name them beyond just the rights that exist within existing human rights treaties and the various instruments and documents of human rights, equality and non-discrimination. Maybe we should think about that as equity or fairness accountability and the rule of law, patient in society, and in this context, it's participation in the decisions about design and implementation of technologies, universality and inalienability, that we have these rights by virtue of being human, not by virtue of what society we happen to be born in, or what class we happen to be born in, or what race we happen to be born, or ethnic group. And also, we can't give these fundamental core values up, and indivisibility interdependence and interrelatedness, meaning that you really can't separate any of these things that economic and social rights and civil and political rights, even though we tend to think of them as separate in law, they can't really be separated in practice because having a job or having economic stability is actually what allows you, gives you the chance to participate in civil society or in, in politics. So, you know, if you're sick, you can't participate and on the other hand, that if you don't have basic civil and political rights, you can't actually advocate for the more advanced rights that are increasingly becoming important. You know, it occurs to me as you're talking that there's really two pivotal moments in terms of human rights that we're talking about. One, I think, first, primarily in the philosophical, the second in the legal. Philosophical, when I trace back to somebody like Immanuel Kant, who really gives us the essential premise of human rights when he says, and I'm paraphrasing him here, human lives are human lives anywhere and everywhere. It's the categorical imperative. The second moment is a post-1945 moment when human rights is codified into a kind of international 
universal legal premise. And I look at some of the benchmarks along the way, and one of the things that's striking to me is that some of our great human rights thinkers are also some of the great technological innovators of their time. So for example, you know, I'm talking about somebody like Benjamin Franklin, somebody like Thomas Jefferson, somebody like George Washington Carver, somebody like Albert Einstein, somebody like Al Gore. How do we think about what unifies, on the one hand, a person with a technological vision and somebody with a human rights vision? Are there things that connect these two kinds of, you might call them utopian visions about making the world a better place? What do these figures, human rights activists on the one hand, technological innovators on the other hand, and sometimes they're the same person, have in common? That's a very interesting question. It takes me back to history of science and history of natural philosophies in ways that I am not so sure I still knowledgeable enough to really comment deeply on. But when you look at the development of science, there was a period where science was natural philosophy and the kinds of fundamental moral questions and questions that we ask about the natural world were not all that different. And over time, those things have separated that they've kind of been pulled apart for a variety of reasons that I probably would want to go back to the many books that I read 25 years ago to really fully understand. But at a certain point, thinking about moral claims and philosophical claims became antithetical, or political claims actually became antithetical to doing good science. Doing good science was about following methods, about following evidence, about seeking only the truth of the natural world, not some greater truth. And it was actually the separation of science from philosophy or morality or politics that made science so politically powerful, that there were people who were actually doing something political, producing knowledge, and claiming that the knowledge had no politics, didn't have any biases, and so therefore could be used to make all kinds of decisions that were deeply political and deeply moral and had real consequences on people's lives. And I think it's taken us a really long time to get back to the point where most people, or many people at least, are willing to admit that science is political, that there is not a separation between science and politics that we'd like to think there was over, you know, certainly since the Second World War, probably into the 18th and 19th centuries, if you want to go back. And so there has been a movement to kind of return or restore politics to science and technology. And I think that's a really good thing. I think if you look at how science is taught today, you don't get much of that. It's always a kind of, people are willing to talk about the politics of science. It's about interference. And that if these annoying people just let us alone, left us to do the work that we want to do, we could discover amazing things, but they keep intervening and telling us that the things that we're doing are immoral or, you know, are having negative consequences. And so that has been the dominant way that many scientists, not all, there have been scientists who I think are more enlightened or, you know, maybe more willing to see things differently than they've been taught. But there is increasingly a move to kind of restore or return politics to science in a meaningful way. It's still something that you won't see on the curriculum in most science and technology classes, that it gets added on as a unit after, or for students who are interested, they have to go find people like me who are teaching classes on the ethics and politics of science and the social dimensions of science. And it's always so fun to teach those students when they come in because they are often students who see things and think things and feel things when they're learning their discipline 
that never get addressed within the discipline. And then suddenly they come to me and, you know, I teach them about human rights law in the context of technology or humanitarian law in the context of, say, the use of drones or autonomous weapons in war. And they really, they're actually happy that they're learning it, but also angry that it's not something that is taught to them as if their engineering mentors or teachers don't think it's all that relevant, that what really matters is the technology. And they have to go somewhere else to find out about how these things are used in the real world. It's just like, you know, at Carnegie Mellon, we have a robotic center and not to call out my institution, which I love in lots of ways, but we talk a lot about the robotic center, but we don't often talk about how the developments that are made there get used in a military context. And, you know, the tools that we develop for quote unquote commercial processes or commercial applications end up in military weapons all the time, many of which are deadly weapons. And so I think that these are the kinds of things that we need to bring back into science and technology education and to talk about them more openly. And that might lead students to question the path that they're on and maybe try and take a different one, or at least ask different questions when they're in, the, in their laboratories or, or doing their work. Well, don't worry. I have plenty of questions about the ways in which technological processes end up harming or violating human rights. But first, I want to talk a little bit about the role that technologies have played in human rights processes themselves, oftentimes in really productive ways, intervening into the process, for example, of evidence production and collection in tribunals of truth and reconciliation processes. For example, I think in particular about the South African truth and reconciliation process, which is really hobbled in terms of its ability to collect evidence by the challenges of collecting evidence the cost of collecting evidence, the lack oftentimes of technologies to collect evidence, and the way that technological innovations may have actually amplified the ability of those processes to evidence the human rights violations there. Technologies have provided new ways to collect or record or to store evidence. Can you talk a little bit about the ways in which technologies have promoted and enhanced human rights processes, at least a little bit before we go into the ways in which they may have harmed or hindered it? Yeah, on the one hand, I always say that technologies aren't neutral. But on the other hand, it is true that many technologies are double-edged swords. So when we think of information and communication technologies, increasingly, we see the negative impacts of those tools, like the ability of companies and governments to surveil you and to gather information about your most intimate activities and details of your lives, and then to analyze and package that information in ways that they either profit from or gain increasing control over you. But these tools also allow us to communicate around the world. I think that it is true that even Facebook, you know, which I consider to be one of the more evil companies out there, hopefully your podcast isn't sponsored by Facebook, but we're Facebook supported. <laughs> we're the Facebook center of ethical technology. I'm kidding. Right. It's a right. joke. Yeah. So, you know, my wife is South African and her family is dispersed around the world. And they use Facebook to communicate, to keep up with one another. And I think that in many countries, Facebook really is the internet. That's what people use to keep up with their relatives around the world, to sell whatever products or services they're producing. So it is the case that even the worst technologies, almost all of the worst technologies have aspects. The problem is that we haven't, we as people haven't been in control of the development of those tools. And so companies have optimized them for their own needs, which are often making money, not other goals. And that, you know, we kind of use them and modify them and kind of learn to live with the way that they work in order to do things that we want. And so, you know, I think that 
in my own work, information and communication technologies, ICTs, as they were called maybe a decade ago. I haven't seen that term used very much, but you know, you think of the cell phone, the mobile phone with a really good camera that's in your almost everyone's pockets, that it's really easy to document things that are happening. Documentation puts you at risk, particularly if you share it over social media or semi-private networks. But when you see something as a citizen, you now have the ability to document it. It's not just your word. It's not just your testimony. There are videos that will support your testimony, whether it's you actually doing it or someone else nearby. And so the ability to know what's going on in the world has been dramatically improved because of this technology. I think it also makes us really depressed and sad because a lot of things that happen in the world are bad and we're kind of bombarded by them every day. And so when I, when I see the world around me and I try and make myself feel better, one of the things that I remind myself is that the world isn't that different than it's ever been. It's just that we know a lot more about the bad stuff that's happening because it's circulating around the world almost instantaneously. That said, when you're trying to catalog bad things that are happening, there's a lot of evidence at your disposal that you can use to build cases against governments, non-state actors, companies. It's obviously not simple and there's a lot that goes into it, but that evidence is available. And the challenge is that just because it's available doesn't mean that it gets turned into justice. There isn't some algorithm or machine or artificial intelligent actor that can turn evidence of human rights abuse into justice. That is a fundamentally human activity. And so most of what we've tried to do is give human rights advocates access to technology that will allow them to turn the evidence that's available in the world into justice because it doesn't happen on its own. Yeah. The obvious example of what you're talking about here is the murder of George Floyd and the fact that the legal processes that convicted his killer, police officer Derek Chauvin, was only many things able to be carried out justly because of the presence of a video recording taken by a witness who recorded the video on her cell phone. Did this make you think differently about the technologies of, for example, mobile phone video capacity in the context of thinking about human rights? Did it change anything for you? Did it make you more optimistic about the utility of these technologies for human rights? I wouldn't say that it changed my perspective. I think if anything, like a lot of people, the emergence of video evidence of, of police violence or police abuse and deaths in custody really motivated me to think about those issues more deeply and to not ignore them. As a historian and as a social scientist, I knew that these things happened, but to physically see them on video and to see so many instances of them on video, it was something that I found that I couldn't look away from. It really dovetailed with other work that I was doing on both identifying victims of human rights abuse and on developing a better understanding of how many people were dying in particular conflicts or how many people were impacted by human rights violations. So I think I'm not a typical person just because I think about these things so much. But I would say that before, I don't know, probably 2013 or 2014, I didn't think about police killings or deaths in custody on a regular basis or in a very deep, meaningful way. And now that's what I'm doing. So I'm writing a book on the way that we record and investigate deaths in custody and kind of 
going back to the early history of the country and the history of lynching and understanding the parallels and differences between lynching and deaths in custody. And it's really because the videos made it impossible for me to look away. But on the other hand, my earlier work was on the development of DNA identification in the American legal system. And the reason I got involved in human rights or interested in human rights is because the same technology that was putting people in prison or convicted a sentence to death was also being used in some situations to exonerate people who had been wrongly convicted with other evidence and was increasingly being used in post-conflict societies to identify people who were killed by state or non-state actors and to at least give their families some measure of understanding about either what happened to them or just that they were actually dead and they weren't somewhere else. So this has kind of been a running theme of my career that technology does some things that I would consider quite harmful or not necessarily human rights promoting, but that the same technologies can also actually be used to protect and promote human rights if that's your goal. So a technology is not on its own going to advance the cause of human rights. It's only when people make a conscious decision to go in that direction. That's why I think it's so important for people who are developing technologies to at least have an understanding of, of ethics and of human rights and understanding of the history of how technology has been used to harm people in the past. You know, I'm not saying that they should stop developing technology and go get a PhD in history or in philosophy or something like that, but just having a baseline understanding of how technology has harmed people. And also, what is it that actually leads someone to be able to use a technology to do something good? What needs to happen at the technical level or the scientific level to enable that? Because it isn't always automatic. It isn't something that just happens. Well, you've gestured a couple of times and you've brought up already the ways in which technological products have imperiled or harmed human rights. So maybe it's a good point to stop and talk about that. What are some of the cases where tech has damaged human rights values or the human rights of individual persons or groups? The historical case that I think about a lot is eugenics mm -hmm. in the context of sterilizing people, of putting people in institutions, of preventing certain groups of people from coming to this country and many others. And, you know, the ultimate use of eugenics during the Nazi era in Germany and the killing of six million Jews and six million other groups that were deemed to be not fit. That's the kind of the canonical example that I often start with. But when we look at the technologies that we use in our daily lives that track us, that collect information about who we talk to, what we think about, what searches we put in our search engine bars, what pictures and images we look at, what sites we visit, what things we're interested in purchasing. And I feel very strongly about it. I don't know. And it's something that I haven't really started talking to my own kids about, but I worry that my own children who live in a world where their movements are tracked and, you know, when I want to know where my kids are, I just go to find my friends and I can see where they are, assuming they've they haven't figured out how to manipulate that or leave their phone somewhere and then go out. But we can very easily be tracked. And that's not necessarily a bad, inherently bad thing. It's about how it's used and the ways that companies use it. And I think governments have a long history of surveilling people and of tracking people and of manipulating people through technology. It's not that any of these things are new, 
It's that the power of the devices that we carry with us and that we use to conduct our lives, you know, are increasingly at the same time making certain aspects of our life easier, but also encroaching on basic rights. The, you can kind of go from there, think about things like the way that certain kinds of technologies are used to impact the lives of people who are marginalized or poor. So you think of people who can't pay an electricity bill on a month-to-month basis, well, their electricity or their water becomes metered or their internet access becomes metered, and they have to constantly put money in those meters in order to continue to get something that is really necessary to live a life. And so you can think of technologies being used in those ways. I mean, there are all kinds of examples of technologies that are used or algorithms that are used to determine who gets a mortgage or who gets bail or who gets hired. It's not the technologies themselves. It's the way that we program them and the assumptions and the norms that are built into them that have an impact on people's lives. Yeah. It sounds like there are a couple of different registers in which you have concern. There's the big human rights violations, the ones where we have the red flags, the ones that cause, for example, the United States to pull out of a Olympics being held in China because of the concern about, for example, the way in which surveillance technology is being employed and leveraged in what many have called a genocide in Myanmar against the Muslim Uyghur population. There is the context of surveillance for example, in Hong Kong, where activists are targeted, surveilled, and then frequently imprisoned in the context of, again, Chinese use of technology. There's the context that many are concerned about, for example, the application of certain forms of discourse that have led to genocide. But then there are also the kind of smaller human rights violations that exist in ways that don't, for example, mobilize an entire international communities disdain or response, but on certain levels seem to be enforcing all sorts of either self-policing or all sorts of small human rights violations that concern you as well. Is that an accurate depiction? And if so, how do we think about those smaller human rights violations, the ones that may not directly register in terms of a human rights legal violation or a policy violation How do we think about those in terms of their human rights? Just to kind of build on what you originally said, I think that to use a metaphor that often gets used, you know, you you can kill someone by cutting their jugular vein and they bleed out pretty quickly, or you can do the death by a thousand cuts approach. And my concern is that when someone gets cut in the jugular vein and there's blood spurting everywhere, it's a weird metaphor, but, but it's clear. We can all kind of see it. It's when our rights are very gradually eroded and, you know, we can think of our voting rights as one or, you know, the ability to exist in a democratic society, that it's not that suddenly we live in a autocratic or theocratic society. It's that slowly our rights are eroded and sometimes we don't even notice it because it happens so gradually. I think that's one kind of register. The other kind of register is that there are that I, as someone who is relatively well-off in society and relatively aware of what's going on, I have the ability to shield myself from many of the impacts of technology. I don't interact with the criminal legal system on a daily basis or even on a monthly or yearly basis. I, quite frankly, other than just being sent to speeding tickets from a camera when I was visiting my family in suburban Maryland, the speed limit changed from 35 to 25. and I didn't realize it the first time. And 
I think that the county probably banks on being able to catch me with speeding cameras. Once I realized it, I slowed down on the road to the appropriate speed limit. But, you know, 40 bucks a pop, I can handle $80 in speeding tickets. It's just not a big deal to me. But there are lots of people who don't have that advantage of not interacting with the criminal legal system and not being subjected to automated methods for determining whether they have whether you know they can make bail or whether they're going to be hired and might not even have access might not really know about these things and so there are whole groups of people who whose lives are affected on a daily basis by technology and don't have the power to push back so there's a kind of there's a very inequitable impact and the benefits of these technologies and the costs aren't shared by the same people and so i think that's my other big concern is that with most technologies, with most everything, the people who benefit from the technologies don't get impacted by as many of the downsides. It's not just that some people benefit a lot more, it's that some people mostly benefit and some people are mostly harmed. And the people who are mostly harmed are often the ones who have the least amount of resources to push back. And so those are the two registers that I think really concern me. And my argument for people who are developing technologies to actually understand this is that you can actually build in certain kinds of safeguards into the technology if you recognize that harms and benefits aren't equally distributed in society to ensure that a technology can't be used in particular ways or that if it is used in particular ways that the user gets a flag saying, hey, have you thought about this set of ethical issues? Or are you aware that you know only certain classes of people are exposed to this particular analysis. And just building those things in, I think would be very meaningful and useful. Unfortunately, the companies that produce the things, you know, might push back, but there are other ways for people who understand the inner workings of technology. There are other ways for them to communicate their concerns. I think that we've seen a bit of that with the recent, what's her name, Frances Haugen? I can't remember her name, but the Facebook employee came like a crypto millionaire or something and decided that it was time to speak out against the company that she had been working for, working at for several years. And I really admire her for doing that in many ways, but it's only after she was able to move to Puerto Rico and live in a kind of crypto community that she did that. And I have mixed feelings about that. And I, you know, perhaps waiting and kind of coming out against Facebook in the way that she did uh, amplified the value of her critique. But there are lots of people who have been shouting these things for more than a decade who haven't made millions of dollars, you know, who are kind of living hand to mouth in many cases. But those people don't get listened to because we don't like to hear these things. And I think who she is, like physically, as a woman who looks a particular way, I think that has allowed her to be heard or given her credibility. And she's white, you know, she appears to be white in a way that lots of activists who are from marginalized communities, racial and ethnic minorities, sexual minorities, gender nonconforming, the people who are often impacted by technologies in a harmful way, those people haven't been heard. And it's been extremely frustrating to see that the people who are usually heard are very wealthy, white former employees who suddenly develop a conscience after they're able to live a very comfortable life. I mean, I applaud them in the sense that they're willing to speak up finally, but it's very interesting to me that uh, when we think of critics of technology, 
we don't think of like a non-binary activist in Kuala Lumpur or something like that. We think of like an ex-Silicon Valley executive who worked inside the company and built the thing and then feels bad about it and then comes to clean their conscience by speaking out against it. And it's a trope that we see over and over again. It is incredibly frustrating that the people who are in the communities that are being impacted, who speak out, just don't get heard. And the people who benefit from the technologies and feel bad about it are the ones that get to launch the critique. It's a narrative. It's a kind of archetype that we have had prior technology that there's the in, inner voice who becomes the savior. And it's a trope that plays out over and over again so that when we look for spokespeople, we look to this particular population because that's where we already expect to find it. But to go back to, I think, some of the larger points that you're saying, I think that you make a point that there are really two dimensions that we need to think about in terms of maybe reforming the way that tech practices at the intersection of human rights ultimately end up. The first that you mentioned is the context of teaching tech practitioners to think about human rights. But the second that I want to call attention to is actually the need to reform how we think about human rights and its policies itself. Now, I want to talk about the second and kind of earmark that in just a second, but let's go to the first. One of the things that you write is that, I'm going to quote you here, what computer scientists can do is ensure that the human rights community has equal access to the tools of computer vision and machine learning so that human rights practitioners can return the gaze of violators and engage in counter forensics. You're talking about this in the particular context of counter forensics and human rights for computer vision and machine learning. But I think the point can be expanded to think about tech practitioners in general. What do you think tech practitioners can or should be doing, not just kind of conceptually, but on the job to attend to human rights priorities? So the, the term counter-forensics, the idea is one that I borrow from uh, Al Weitzman, who is a, a British architect, human rights practitioner, who works at an organization called Forensic Architecture. And I think he is part of a broader community of people who are interested in using tools that are most often used by the state to, on the one hand, solve crime, on the other hand, to push back against dissent or to find people who are threats to the government and actually use those same tools to understand what the government is doing and to show people what the government is doing in the name of citizens or what a company is doing. And so it's taking tools that have traditionally been developed in service of the state and switching or reversing the gaze and breaking down in a scientific way the activities of the state. When we at the Center for Human Rights Science and my colleagues at Carnegie Mellon tend to use the terminology leveling the playing field, human rights practitioners understand that they're never going to have billions and billions of dollars or millions and millions of dollars to develop new technologies in the way that the government or big companies have to do research and development. And for them, the best that they can hope for is to have access to the tools that get developed in that context. This is changing, I think, because there are, there are now people with lots of money who are funding particular kinds of technology development within certain human rights groups. But on the whole, the human rights movement has not access to the kind of data analysis and information processing 
technology that a government would or that a big company would and, or a military would. There have to be organizations. You know, ours is one. Forensic architecture is another. C2 Research in New York is another. There are organizations in various parts of the world in Germany that do this kind of thing. But to kind of act as a go-between the academic community where these things are developed and the human rights community. I think in some cases, if you think about someone who works maybe at, for a company that has a satellite network that takes images of the earth, you can give some access to human rights advocates or practitioners or environmental researchers, but there's a limit to what can be done. So I guess I don't expect people who are working within military or intelligence organizations or the companies that work for them to do this kind of thing. I think it more has to happen outside. That There will be cases where a Google or Microsoft, for that matter, will make some of their technology and some of their processing power available to human rights practitioners, but it's almost always done in a self-serving way that either you know allows for a PR win or gives these companies a better understanding of the kinds of problems that human rights practitioners are asking or the kinds of analyses they're doing. And you always run the risk when you work with a company that somehow the government or whatever state you're examining or some other company will find out and will actually learn what you're doing. They'll be able to surveil the kind of analyses that you're doing. And so the ability of companies and government workers to aid the human rights community exists, but it's always limited. And so there has to be another channel to ensure that happens. I will say that over the past couple of years, the technical and technological capacity of the human rights community, certainly the well-resourced organizations in the global north, has improved dramatically. And there are fewer and fewer people kind of calling us and asking for help because they either have access to the tools themselves or there are, you know, there are other ways that they're gaining access to these technologies. And so it's been interesting to see just how quickly the human rights community has realized that technology is the, I mean, it's not the way forward, but it's an, it's an important part of adapting to the new world that we live in, especially given that we all live online and that almost all of us have cameras in our pockets that are infinitely more powerful than digital cameras were even five or 10 years ago. And so in order to keep playing, in order to be active in the human rights domain, you need to have technological capacity. That means that smaller organizations and organizations outside the global north are at a big disadvantage. And this is an equity issue. And so the ability to do the kinds of analyses that my colleagues at Carnegie Mellon can do require a certain infrastructure that only the biggest human rights organizations have. I think when we started this work, we had this vision that we would provide machine learning and artificial intelligence, if you want to call it that, machine learning, computer vision, video analysis, data analysis services to small human rights organizations. But many of those organizations don't even have the capacity to gather the data that can be analyzed with the kind of technology that we have access to. It's only the big ones that have the ability to gather and maintain these large databases or collections of evidence where the kinds of tools that we offer have value because just churning a small amount of data through an algorithm won't get you very far. You have to train it by hand anyway, and you can just do the analysis by hand. And so the applications are limited, but growing. And I don't really know how to solve that problem. We haven't really had the 
occasion to work with small human rights organizations, in part because they don't know about us, and in part because they don't have the capacity to gather large amounts of data, or they don't even have the need for it. So we've always kind of preached that don't use technology when it won't help support your mission, when it won't advance your mission and make you more effective and efficient. And so, you know, I haven't, we haven't really gone out to spread the quote unquote gospel of machine learning and AI and computer vision to the entire human rights community, because that might not be what they need. And I think that we need to recognize and respect that. But there are lots of cases where people need it. We have done some work with smaller organizations in Ukraine. We've supported various efforts in other countries as well from smaller organizations. And it's really hard to work with them because they're doing a hundred other things at once, in addition to trying to learn how a new technology works and what they need to do to make it useful to them. So it's a, it's a challenging landscape. What about not just small actors on the terrain of human rights, but large actors on the terrain of human rights? For example, governments working in the context of the ICC or structures of the United Nations. Do you see our technological age changing the terrain of human rights on this larger actor scale? I think certainly when you think about the International Criminal Court, they have worked really hard to improve their data collection and evidence collection procedures, their analysis, in part because there was a point where the judges came back to them and said, listen, when the only thing that the prosecution comes with is some testimony, that is not enough to convict someone for a grave human rights violation. We need other evidence. And so they've kind of been They've been forced to really think about evidence collection and digital evidence collection. And we've worked with them on a lot of those issues over the years. And the Human Rights Center at Berkeley has worked with them. And then, you know, once you have the capacity, you need to teach judges who might not have much technical savvy how you collected it and why it's valid, why it's valid and reliable and what it tells you. There are also challenges of just presenting the evidence. I, won't, I don't even want to go into that because it's so depressing and tedious that once you've done an analysis, to actually get it entered into a court is a, a massive lift. It's really difficult. We've seen that both at the ICC and in national and domestic contexts that you know, we've done work for smaller organizations, for medium-sized organizations. And to figure out how to enter it into the record is a it's a monumental achievement. It's a technical challenge in and of itself. But yes, I think that given how much of our lives are lived online and that so many violations occur through technology, the human rights community has had to become more aware of these kinds of things so that they could, so that they can both defend married people and other practitioners and also to seek accountability, say when an activist phone is hacked or when someone's whereabouts are surveilled or when someone is, is threatened through technology or harmed in another way. And so I think that human rights violations are, by virtue of the world that we live in and by virtue of the way that we live, increasingly technologically mediated. And so in order to defend against them and to prosecute violators, technology is necessary in that fight as well. So it's a kind of, it's a, an, a necessary evolution or a logical evolution of both human rights harms and the protection and promotion of human rights and seeking accountability for violations. Can you talk a little bit about the Documenting the Now project that 
you talk about in your work. What is that project and how does that project address some of the major issues and questions that come up with regard to the agency or representation or the lack of representation in not only the collection of evidence, but also the preservation of it? In our- I don't want to talk too much about someone else's project, particularly because I haven't spoken to them in a while. But in, in general terms, the Inting the Now project emerged out of a group of scholars who are interested in um, really in documenting the uh, online activism, I think around Black Lives Matter. I don't remember exactly when they started, but they were very cognizant that statements being made on Twitter, I don't know exactly which platforms they focus on, that it was important to understand how activism was taking shape in these spaces, but also that the mere act of doing activism put many of the people who were being active in danger of increased police presence, harassment, death threats, those sorts of things. So the team wanted to both collect that information and also do it in an ethical way. And so I think that there were a project that actually went out to the community that they were seeking to document and asked for consent, not just consent, but advice. Should we do this? How should we do this? What are the harms? What are the good things that can come out of it? And how should we protect you and others who are, you know, who are engaging in activism or just speech expression in an online context? And one of the decisions that the Documenting the Now team made, I don't know whether they still do things this way, but rather than actually collecting the data, the tweet, the actual text, they archive a link. And the reason that's important is that an individual might, for a variety of reasons, decide that they no longer want their utterances to be public, either because they are applying for a job or have been threatened or are involved in a legal case. And, you know, they don't want the police to know that they've said certain things, you know, like F the police or, you know, all cops are pigs or whatever, or, you know, we were here at this place. Even these are my connections. This is my social network. Because that is something that intelligence groups or police groups will use to infiltrate a movement. And one of the reasons that the Black Lives Matter movement is relatively horizontal and doesn't have a clear leadership structure is that when you look at the civil rights movement, you can see that the government played a direct role in breaking it down and blanking on the word, but sort of infiltrating human rights organ- or civil rights organizations and creating, stirring up trouble, creating conflicts where conflicts didn't exist or exacerbating conflicts and actually destroying a movement and sometimes killing the leaders of movement, Fred Hampton for one. So it's important that police or other government organizations maybe don't know the network of activists who are involved in a particular movement. And so the documenting the now decided that they would only collect the link so that if an activist decided to take down their tweet or their post, that it would actually disappear from the archive. This is not the approach that human rights organizations take. Doc, the DocNow project, Documenting the Now project, is principally a, an archival project. It's not so much a human rights organization. And one of the arguments that human rights groups make is that preservation of evidence is important because it can be taken down for lots of different reasons, often because the perpetrators demand that the social media platform take it down or people who are aligned with the perpetrators say that it violates the terms of service. You know, it might be violent, it might have bad words if it's a, the aftermath of a 
an attack, it might show people who have had their clothes blown off. And so they might say, oh, there's nudity in there or something like that, or, you know, it's slanderous or whatever. And so there are lots of reasons why content is taken down that's relevant to human rights investigations that aren't just the person who uploaded it or someone who was in it asking for it to be taken down or having it taken down. It can be taken down for various reasons that aren't necessarily as legitimate. And so there is an effort to safely and securely serve that material. And these are conversations that we've been involved in. And there are lots of groups that are trying to persuade the platforms themselves to preserve it. But I have no faith in companies to do that kind of work because it exposes them to liability. It will run them afoul of governments that they want on their side because they want to operate in those places. This isn't something that we can rely on people inside the network or inside the power structure to do. These are things that people who are tangential to power, and I would put myself in that category, do at the edges of power, at the edges of organizations and institutions, because I am not connected to any of the social media platforms, but I have access to the technology that they have access to. And so that's kind of the role that I see for myself. You talked about the safety and the security of the information, and it strikes me, and it strikes me here and through a number of different conversations I've had, that the safety and the security of the information is pretty contingent upon the technologies that are available. I'm recalling right now in particular a conversation that I had with the director of the USC Shoah Foundation, Dr. Stephen D. Smith, where we talked about the ways in which the technical capacities of archival storage everything from video recording capacity to tagging capacities to moving testimonial storage to a technology of blockchain, which is a current ongoing project of the USC, are ways in which the the testimonies of the past become not only archived, but available to us in different ways, available to our questions as scholars in different ways, making the testimony themselves prompt different ways of thinking about them. I think, for example, of the technology of tagging, which allows scholars to look at testimonies and ask very different questions than they might if they were looking at individual testimonies. Do you see our changing technological environments for documenting, storing, archive, and identifying information within accumulation of evidence changing how we think about human rights? Or what questions can we ask now that we have different technologies or evolving technologies for assessing documented evidence? And do they change the way that we may be able to protect human rights from violations or punish human rights violations by perpetrators? This isn't one that I have an obvious answer for. It's a, I think it's a really complicated question in part because, yes, we can do all kinds of amazing analyses that we haven't been able to do in the past. It's infinitely easier to do research today than it was 20 or 30 years ago. You know, certainly when I was an undergraduate, I saw a reference to a government document in something I was doing yesterday. And I, through the magic of Google and OCR and PDF, I had the document from the Library of Congress within 30 seconds. And that's amazing. But the policy recommendations that I make based on my research are no more likely to be implemented now than they were 30 or 40 years ago. So just because we have access to much more information, just because we can process much more information, doesn't mean that the world is going to change. And I think that's kind of the key. 
one aspect of my mantra, I think something that I've said more than anything else is that building a case doesn't necessarily bring justice. It's a step in the process, but we can't assume that just because we have better analytical tools or more evidence or more data or more powerful computing technologies or more secure servers or any of these things that we're going to produce justice or produce a more just world. That's a human activity. There's no algorithm that can produce justice. I think that if we get focused too much on the technology and the terabits of data that we lose sight of what we really want, I think that at the end of the day, we all want to see a more just world. And I can assure you that technology isn't the automatic guarantee of that future. It's really important that affected communities are answering these questions far more than me. I think that people whose lives are lived in danger on a daily basis, as equipped, if not better equipped, to answer these kinds of questions as me. So if you kind of task me with answering these questions, I would probably put together a group of people who are familiar with technology and live their lives in danger and ask them, you know, what do you think about this? In the same way, and I think that's the lesson from the documenting the now, it's not a matter of kind of building a tool or building a technology and then implementing it and then seeing what bad things or good things happen and then going to ask people whose lives have been affected what they think of it. It's before you build a thing, while you're building a thing and while you're implementing it, that those people have a literal seat at the table. They literally sit with you or they're in a Zoom chat with you. That's the lesson that I really hope that everyone learns. And that's the message that I bring to everyone is that you can't anticipate all of the people your thing will impact, but you can certainly, if you're reasonably smart and reasonably aware of the world around you, can figure out some of those people. And you know you need to go beyond just the most obvious people and really think about the broad range of people that can be impacted by technology positively and negatively and bring them together and allow them to set the terms of debate and allow them to answer the kinds of questions uh, that you're asking. I mean, I have my intuitions, but I live a really comfortable life. And I was just thinking like my Apple watches, I resisted getting one for a while, but it's perfect in every way. Like it does everything I want it to do. It doesn't cause me any harm to the best of my knowledge. People may be surveilling what I'm doing. I do have by default use privacy enabled technologies and try and limit what people can know about me. But if something bad happens to me, I can hire a lawyer who will get me out of the situation. As unsettling as the world is around us right now, I can't really think of too many ways that my life has been impacted negatively by technology kind of in my daily life. I think there are some existential issues that we're all dealing with, but you know, I haven't been denied a loan that will allow me to buy a house or to send my kids to school or whatever through technology. My life is enabled by technology and that's by design because I am the class of people for whom technology is built. And, you know, I sometimes get ads that creep me out a little bit, whatever, because they know a little bit too much about me, but that's about it. That's the extent of the impact, the negative impact that technology has on my daily life. And so there are lots of people who are not that fortunate. And I would like those people to have a say 
I did want to circle back and talk a little bit because when we were talking about the negative consequences of technology, we talked a little bit about one way to ameliorate that, which is, as you were just discussing, involve people who can think about the tech in different ways from diverse perspectives and also, you know, train technologists to think about things like human rights. The other part of the problem is to think about the ways in which our political system is fairly intransigent and that it is still very much predicated on formal codification of human rights and what human rights violations look like from the mid 20th century. This is a model established in the wake of the Nazi atrocities against the Jews of Europe. And in that 20th century, the human rights violations that are most severely pronounced and engraved in our record of human rights violations include things like governmental perpetrators, for the most part, from Cambodia's Pol Pot, whose regime killed between 1.5 to 2 million people in the Khmer Rouge in the 1970s, to Slobodan Milosevic, charged with war crimes in Bosnia in the 1990s for killing thousands of ethnic Bosnians, to the Rwandan genocide of 1994, in which a largely Hutu population of government composed into a government militia murdered over 1 million Rwandan Tutsis. But the 21st context of human rights and genocide greatly complicates that kind of governmental actor model of recognizing human rights violations. Because when we get into the context of the 21st century, we see For example, Facebook playing a role in engineering a genocide in Myanmar against the Rohingya Muslim community. Of course, we still have the complicity of the Myanmar security forces, but Facebook's role as a private company, not a state actor, but a private corporation whose platform was, by the account of many human rights thinkers, indispensable for bringing about that genocide, complicates that 1945 model, how we think about perpetration and how we think about complicity. How do we think about the role of private tech companies, engineers, and Silicon Valley living very comfortably in the context of Palo Alto, going to work at an Edenic-like campus, and then engineering algorithms that end up perpetrating a violation. How do we think about that in the context of human rights? Do our legal systems in the context of human rights have the means to accommodate this kind of participation in the violation or this new form of thinking about human rights perpetration? If not, what needs to happen? So I think we're getting a little bit of, above my <laughs> Bay grade, but the, the, that's a, there's a discipline of business and human rights that kind of seeks to answer those questions. There's a generation of scholars who are really thinking about this particular issue in two areas that I'm familiar with. One is the one that you mentioned in the context of social media platforms and companies that facilitate what we ordinarily think of as like the public sphere, but it's brought into a private context. And also in the context of drone, the engineers and companies that are building the infrastructure for drone warfare on autonomous weapons and increasingly are building tools that can be used to assassinate people in a very kind of surreptitious and and pretty accurate way. There have been some really interesting stories, assassinations of, of Iranian. I think there was a recent one of an Iranian governmental official. I can't remember. I think he was a scientist Lamani? who ran a nuclear. I think he was Iranian. I have to double check. He may have been part of the nuclear engineering community in Iran and, you know, potentially work on weapons. And Israel basically built a system to assassinate him using a remotely controlled gun. And so those are the contexts that I think about these things. We definitely know the old way of thinking about accountability and human rights doesn't work because companies do things that were formerly the purview of the state. 
And so we really do need to update our human rights law. I will say that, you know, human rights law has evolved significantly since the Holocaust and since the Nuremberg trials. I mean, we have a whole body of law that is devoted to social, economic, and political rights. And so it isn't the case that human rights law has been static. And I think the next frontier is really figuring out how to deal with private organizations, companies, and also human rights groups to a certain extent that are playing public functions. I don't have a great answer for you about what needs to happen, just because if I knew the answer to that, you know, I would have already told everyone about it. I agree with the premise of the question that the law that exists now is not adequate in face of the reality that we live in a world where private companies control public spaces, control the public sphere and the marketplace of ideas. And governments have either not yet developed the tools that they need to regulate those things or don't want to or have been bought off. Our politicians have been bought off by these companies not to really regulate them. And so hopefully this is something that people who have more understanding of law and governance than I do can figure out moving forward. What value do the humanities as a set of disciplines and humanistic values as a tradition play or what role can they play in cultivating a better understanding of and thinking about what it is that we do when we envision, design, and create technologies? When scientists and engineers and technologists develop new things, the goal is sometimes, you know, just to learn something new, but it's usually to make life better or to, one would hope that the goal is not just to innovate for the sake of innovation, but to really improve the lives of people or to make their lives easier in some way. And humanists are the ones who think about what is a good life? What's a meaningful life? You know, how do we live our lives? What are the threats to a good life? How do we ensure a good life? How have technologies enhanced or harmed people in the past? What should the goals and norms of technology development be? And I think that having a better understanding of entity, human society, and the good life, you know, kind of thought broadly and challenges to those things would really have a positive impact on technologists and researchers as they're doing their work. This series, of which this episode is a part, is titled 22 Lessons on Ethical Technology for the 21st Century. What one core lesson do you want to advocate for as a lesson on ethics and tech that you want listeners to take forward as we move deeper into the 21st century? Again, this is, I think, something that's easy. I am in a humanities department at a university that is primarily known for its technical prowess. And it is very difficult for the people in the engineering departments and the science departments and the technical fields to even know that we exist and to understand what value we as humanists have and that we actually could play, need to play a very meaningful role in the education of their students. And so I would advocate for those communities really paying more attention to our expertise and valuing it and inviting us to help them co-create curricula that will educate their students about what they're doing, the impacts of their work, both their research and their development on communities that they may not be aware of, on their own communities, on their own lives, on the lives of people they love and care about. And you know, to help them 
build understandings that will lead them to ask different kinds of questions or approach a question differently or set up a research project differently or build in different mechanisms that ensure safety or accountability or ethics into the tools that they create both while they're students and when they go out into the world and especially if they become teachers and they teach the next generation so that would be my one wish was i don't want to say for people to notice me but to recognize that i have a not just me but people like me humanists have something to offer to them and to their students and to value it as not something that you can just do you know for half of a class or one class as a kind of break from the technical stuff but it has to be integral to the actual education of science and technology students moving forward thanks so much jay thank you the 22 lessons in ethical technology series is co-sponsored by the national science foundation and the cal poly strategic research initiative grant award The show is written, hosted, and produced by me, Deb Donig, with production support from Matthew Harsh and Lee St. John. Thanks to Jake Garner and Emma Zimbro for production coordination. Our head of research for the series is Sakina Nuruddin. Our editor is Kerry Caulfield Eric. To learn more about the 22 Lessons on Ethical Technology series, visit www.etcalpoly.org. And don't forget to subscribe to the show to make sure you don't miss an episode. You can find us on your favorite podcast app. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>